All right, so the discussion around tables is starting to calm down a little bit. This might be a good time to get started. Uh, thank you again. My name is Mike, and looking forward to sharing out of God's Word with you this morning. Uh, we'll do a little bit of review from last week for those of you who weren't here, and then we'll kind of go on from there. But uh, before I start, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this day that we can come into uh, this building as your church and uh, participate in, in singing, in giving, in worshiping through uh, hearing the word. Lord, as we look into your word this morning, I pray that the Holy Spirit would lead and guide our conversation and that it would be for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So, uh, I, last week and this week is my um, group time with you, and uh, so what I'm doing right now is I'm, I'm preparing a, uh, like a five-week series out of Matthew 21 to 26, and the reason I'm doing that is because there is uh, something kind of caught my attention as I was going through this with the men's Bible study that we do on Tuesday morning, and it occurred to me as I was looking at these uh, verses in 21 to 26, that it seemed to be a flow that just kept going and going and going. And, uh, and I started looking at the harmony of the gospel, and the harmonies that I looked at began to say that all of this is one day. One day. So I'm in the midst of preparing a, a total lesson series on one day in the life of Jesus. Now, we know that there's many things that happen to him every day. And, uh, but this is really a neat look at one particular day. It's Tuesday of the week that he was arrested and uh, eventually crucified. So that's uh, kind of where we are. I'm looking at Matthew 21. Uh, last week, we looked at uh, the whole idea that... Uh, in this day, there's just so many different events. I'll just run through them quickly with you to kind of refresh your memory. There is a beginning in verse 18 of 21. There's that encounter with the barren fig tree. This is uh, in the context there is he's on his way toward Jerusalem in the morning. And when he gets to the temple, he begins to teach. And he's interrupted by the Pharisees and the scribes, and they challenge his authority and his, um, well, not ability to teach, but whether or not he's teaching with authority and who gave him that authority. Uh, then he begins to talk about a parable of two sons, the parable of uh, the landowner, the parable of the marriage feast. Then he talks about, and those he relates back to the whole discussion about this authority because it relates back to John the Baptist and their inability to accept him as a prophet. And then there's the uh, challenge about, well, do we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And then there's questions that are being asked of Jesus, and then he begins to ask questions back to the Pharisees. And then he uh, begins to uh, do some more teaching about the Pharisees and their, um, their rejection of God's original plan for them. After he leaves the temple, there's that walk back to the Mount of Olives, and the uh, disciples are asking him about uh, end times things, and he has a chance to share with them about the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, 
And then the judgments to come. Uh, at the end uh, of that discussion, we find him back in Bethany. And in chapter 26, we, we, we see the Pharisees are beginning to plot to have Jesus killed somehow. They don't know how yet. And, uh, and then there's the woman who anoints Jesus during the meal. And then Judas leaves and goes and makes a bargain to betray Jesus. All of that took place in one day. And again, I think I said last week, we don't have a complete record of what Jesus did every day, all day. And I believe the, John 21, 25 says it, and, and there are many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So that's, again, just a brief overview of what we looked at last week. We looked specifically at, last week, uh, briefly looked at the judgment of the barren tree, where anybody that was here, remember, what was our key point there? Jesus approached a tree that was in full leaf. Yes. It wasn't, there was no fruit. Yeah, it gave the appearance that it was going to have fruit. There was nothing. And there was that curse on the tree. It withered. And it was an example about the judgment to come for the nation of Israel. How about the parable of the two sons? Somebody tell us what the parable of the two sons, what is it? Or what was it? Yeah, exactly. And Jesus' question was, well, which one did the will? And obviously there was one who uh, did what he was asked to do, even though initially he rejected it. Um, and then we looked at, for the longest time, longer time, uh, the, the parable of the landowner. And uh, that was in uh, verse 33 of uh, chapter 21. And we have the, the spent time looking at what it was the landowner did to prepare his field and then rented it out. What are some of the things that the landowner did to prepare it for renting out? Built a fence and dug a wine press. Okay. Yeah, he, he, there's planting the vineyard, he's got the wall, he's building the wine press, he's getting everything ready and then he rents it out to somebody who's going to produce fruit to the benefit of the landowner. And what happens when it comes time for harvest? Servants in the sun. Yeah. Yeah, they refused to give uh, the, the benefit that they had, and they, they beat some, killed others, and there was this whole uh, talk about, well, if, if the landowner is in that situation, what's he going to do? He's going to clear out the landowners and put new people in who will give him what he wants. And again, we're looking at the whole rejection of God's will by the people of Israel. And so they were going to be moved off from the lead place. And, uh, and Jesus then gives that parable against them. So today I'd like to spend uh, most of our time looking at and kind of discussing the idea of the parable of the marriage feast 
And uh, you find that in chapter 22. And let me start, uh, just read a few of these verses. I'm going to read through, uh, well, I believe, well, I'll just go ahead and stop when I need to. Verse uh, chapter 22, And Jesus answered and spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. And they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who had been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their own way, one to his own farm and another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. Let's just stop there for a moment. Um, if we take a look at the all for, verse 14, all 1 through 14, it, it's evident there's really two parables. We call it the parable of the marriage feast, but there's really two parables involved. Uh, the first one, part one, we have a king, a son, and a planned wedding feast. Pretty standard. Uh, again, Jesus is telling this story, and, and so he's putting this together. Uh, there is, I think we could imply that there was an earlier invitation. Uh, where do we see that? Um, I believe if we look, he sent a slave out to call those who had been invited. So there'd been an invitation. And, uh, and that's pretty standard. I mean, you get, uh, today, I've been getting them, but we get a card that says, please reserve the date. Please reserve the date. And it's usually months ahead for a wedding. And then as we get closer, we get an actual invitation to that wedding that gives them a little more specifics about exactly where, exactly when, and those sorts of things. But so we can say oh, this, in, in this particular vein, there was a, an invitation extended to these people. And then, in the practice of that day, uh, there was a, uh, a call to arrive that invitation is kind of a, a formal invitation. Okay, today's the day. Everything's ready. Uh, you knew it was coming, but you just didn't know exactly when, exactly what hour, but it's time to gather. And this is the king giving his invitation for the wedding of his son. Um, that would be a real important thing. Uh, so the invitation announcement that all is ready and it's to come. Now, please remember, in, in the dialogue that's occurred prior to this, there's been a discussion about um, the authority of Jesus to teach. And he said, well, if you can tell me whether or not John the Baptist was teaching under God's authority, then I'll tell you under whose authority I'm teaching. And they said, oh, we don't want to do that. And then Jesus talks about this relationship that the um, leaders, religious leaders had about John the Baptist and why it was so important and, and that they had rejected him, therefore he knew they were going to reject him as well. And so the initial disinvitation announcement that all was ready is to come. And that was similar to John the Baptist who said, you know, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was the forerunner of Christ, the Messiah. 
And, and yet they rejected his, his, uh, his teaching, his claim. And what was their initial reaction to this message? Again, back to our parable. What was their initial reaction when the announcement came out, today is the day, come to the feast? They ignored him. Yeah, they ignored him. They were completely, they just, none of them showed up. None of them came. They basically said, nope, not going to come. Um, this is the king asking for their presence. Extended to them, and they said, no, no, not going to come in. Um, any of you ever had a situation where you know, you felt like you had ex- extended an invitation to something and, and it was, perhaps in your eyes, rudely ignored? No? You have? I mean, how did that make you feel? Yeah, they're d- certainly disappointed. Um, say, yeah, these people are ungrateful, right? So we'll get to the application of this. In fact, I, I want, if we're going through this, you know, if you jot down some applications and some, some thoughts, and we'll try to go through those when we get uh, toward the end. But um, it's amazing that there was a second invitation, a second announcement. He says here in uh, verse 4, again, talking about the king, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited... And then he gives more detail is about what the benefits are of showing up. He says, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. He gave a gracious second announcement, a second invitation on the day the feast was supposed to be. Wow. I mean, if you think about it, if you got an invitation to... oh. You know, to go to Lansing and have a meeting with the governor, and you blew it off, and you got a second invitation, um, that would be something you would not want to ignore. You just wouldn't. Um, they gave, there were two responses to this. Verse 5. First of all, But they paid no attention and went their way. One to his own farm, another to his business. So what kind of response is that to that imitation? What's the response? I mean, what what are they saying in that response? It's not just ignorance this time, it's just flat out rejection. Yeah, yeah, it's, I'm not interested. doesn't matter what you're serving, I, I'm just, I'm not interested. What else? It's very disrespectful. Very, yeah. I mean, this is the second announcement, and they still are not going to come. And, and they know what's for dinner, too. And they're still not coming. There was a second response to that as well. First of all, there's this apathy or, or just not caring Verse 6 is, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. There's actually a violent response to this announcement. 
the king, has, he sends out his people, and all of a sudden, he starts getting reports back. Hey, they're being beaten in the streets, these people I'm sending out, and they've even killed some. Um, what an amazing thing. So the king responded properly in, in a lot of ways. It's but Verse 7, but the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Um, wow, that's, uh, that's pretty harsh. But, uh, you know, because they were not, they were not worthy. Uh, so there's this response of indifference to the farm or to a business. Well, let me ask you, uh, is, is a farm or a business a, an important thing? Yeah, it's their livelihood, right? Um, so it's a matter of priority. You know, if they knew this invitation was coming and they knew they, they should have been making some allowances about what's important and say, well, okay, this, this feast is important. I know I have a business. I know I have a farm, but I really should be there. But they wouldn't. Um, and again, the mistreatment and murder uh, was, uh, was inexcusable. And so the king's response, he was enraged and moved with anger. Uh, he destroyed those murderers, burned their cities. Those who had rejected the invitation were not worthy. They were not worthy. Um, back in chapter 21... Jesus, uh, at, the, uh, at the end of uh, the landowner, we looked at that last week, uh, and uh, we talked about the whole, uh, the owner of the vineyard was going to bring new people in, and verse 41, he says, he said to them, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, or they did, they said actually, and will rent out the vineyard to others who will give him the proceeds of the proper season. And then Jesus responds by saying, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in your eyes. And he says there, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, and will be given to a nation producing its fruit. And uh, here again, he's kind of emphasizing the fact that there's going to be uh, a judgment for those who certainly do not respond to the gracious invitation given by the king. The king, however, the wedding is still on. The wedding is still on. The feast is ready. And so he sends out the people again. Verse 9 says, Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all, the, all that they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. Um, so the servants obeyed. They went, the king says, all right, these people weren't worthy. We're going we're gonna to cast this even further. Go out on the highways, the byways, go everywhere you can find these people. The, it doesn't matter who they are, where they are, invite them to come in, both the bad and the good. And the dinner hall is filled. Um, does it surprise you that he says the bad and the good? I mean, they weren't invited the first time. 
and they weren't invited for that initial. But here it is, the bad and the good. Does that surprise you? No? It's a salvation analogy, so it makes sense. <laughs> it makes sense because it's a salvation analogy. Well, that's true, uh, but... Pardon me? Who are the good? Well, yeah, good question. Who are the good? Who are the bad and who are the good? What's the characteristics of both or either? We come across people who are openly sinning. They're, it's obvious. You meet them, you hear them, you see them, and it's obvious that they're a sinner. You could say, that's a bad person. You could. You're making a judgment, but you're basing it on what you observe, what you hear, what you see. But who are the good? I'm sorry, thank No. I didn't, I, well, I'm sorry, I was just didn't hear the reply. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a fair way to say it. Anybody else have a different way of expressing that? Who are the good? You meet somebody and you talk with them, you see them, you maybe share a meal with them, you, you rub shoulders with them at work or, or even here. How do you determine if that's a good person or not? Certainly, yeah. But what else? If you can see into their heart, you'd say, okay, well, this person loves Jesus, but what if you can't? Um, we've had, uh, I've mentioned before, and I'll mention again, Tuesday morning Bible study. We had uh, a guy there a number of years ago who, who came regularly and things like that, and, and, and all of a sudden, something changed, and, and he, he left. Uh, he and his wife got a divorce, and, and he walked away from the Lord. He had never, and, and I didn't catch that he was not a believer. And, uh, and I, I've just, you know, that really, that really hurt me because I thought that he was. I, he was good. He was a good man up until that change. And, uh, and it's just really, that's really a struggle sometimes. So a good person would be somebody who say, well, they're morally good. They're trying to check all the boxes and do all the right things. That's a, that's a good person, right? And, uh, and we find that that's not always the case. Not always the, not always the case. Um, turn back to chapter 13 in Matthew, just for a moment. In, the, uh, in chapter 13, of course, is where you find the, the parable of the sower, and then there's an explanation about the parable of the sower. Then there's a parable about the tares, in the, tares among the wheat. And also in verse 47 and following, the, uh, the parable about the dragnet. Um, anybody know much about the parable on the tares and the wheat? What's happening there? Okay, yeah, exactly right. 
Guy comes in, prepares his, his field. He's got good seed. He, it's all spread out. It's all ready to go. And sometime at night, an enemy comes and starts throwing tares. Uh, it looks a lot like wheat, but it really is worthless. It's weeds. And it, it's sown among that. And so, um, and then the dragnet talks about fishermen. And he compares the kingdom of heaven like a dragnet cast into the sea, gathering fish of every kind, both good and bad. And we can use that as an analogy of saying, well, within the church there are still some who say they're Christians, but really aren't. They're not saved, but they give the appearance of that. Um, and eventually they, they'll be separated. So it's, they're both saying the same thing. Uh, they're together, but they're distinctly different. There's good and bad. So that is, that is still something that's, uh, you have the, the open sinners and then you have the morally good. The wedding hall is filled. Back to chapter 22. The wedding hall is filled. So let's look at some of the elements. Let's take this, instead of looking at the story itself, what is it saying? Who is the king in the story? If we make the application, who is the king? God the Father. Okay. Anybody have any dispute with that? Okay. That's fair enough. Uh, who's the Son? All right. Jesus, the Messiah. Who's the Son? Uh, the Bridegroom. Uh, if you look in uh, Matthew 9.15, Jesus talks about that. Verse 14 says, when the disciples of John came to him saying, uh, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? Jesus said to them, verse 15, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? And so he compares himself to the bridegroom there. Um, in chapter 25, he does the same thing. Um, Verse, 20, or verse 1 of chapter 25, Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to the ten virgins who took the lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. So again, he's using that analogy. You'll also find in uh, John 3, uh, Ephesians 5, and Revelations 21, this reference to Jesus being the bridegroom. So he is the son. Uh, who were the invited guests, the first, the first batch? Let's, let's, get our, let's get our people lined up here. Who were they? The Jews, yeah, the, the nation of Israel. Um, they have been given these precious promises and covenants with God. God said, if you will honor me, worship me, then I will bless you. And, and we see over and over and over again where they broke that covenant. God came back to them over, you know, over and over again and reestablished it. And he intended to do those things. The promises that he made that were unconditional are still in effect. They will happen. Many of them are future yet, even to us. Um, who are those that were invited to that last invitation where they were gathering from the highways and byways? Yeah, Gentiles. Now, I don't know if anybody in this room is of Jewish descent or not. I am not. But uh, if you are, you know, you've still got that, uh, that heritage, but most of us in the room, I dare say, are what we'd call Gentiles. 
uh, non-Jewish. And, uh, and so we're included in that, in that, new, that second group. Now, that was kind of a quick look at the, at the first part of that parable where we, where we get a chance to see uh, this group. Uh, again, it's, it's amazing to think that the king would uh, offer this to a wider group of people, and, uh, and he certainly has done that for us. Let's look at the second part. The second part, verse 11. So we have the scene where the king has got his hall all ready, everything's, everything's ready, and, uh, and he comes in to look over the crowd. And verse 11 says, But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw there a man not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come here without wedding clothes? And he was speechless. All right, let's look at the significance of that. The king arrives and he begins to inspect the crowd. He looks over the crowd just like I'm looking over the room here. And he's looking for people who are dressed appropriately for the event. Now, perhaps some commentators think that at that time there was a custom to provide um, a, a gown or some kind of a um, clothing so that everybody was looking the same. You didn't have, if you had different echo, uh, you know, financial, uh, poor and rich or whatever, everybody had the same clothes that way, at least the outer garments. Um, so that's a possibility. Um, but he's looking over the crowd and he's actually looking at each individual guest. And the king's guest without the clothes, you have to wonder, well, how did he get in? I mean, it would have been obvious to the gatekeepers and whatever, this guy doesn't have the clothes that he should have. And, uh, and so the, the king questions him. The king's question, hey, how did you get in here without those special clothes? Um, let's, uh, let's look at that from a spiritual standpoint. God knows the heart of each one of us. And he is looking at each person and saying, what? What is he, what is he looking for? What is he expecting? I'm wearing the clothes I provided for you. Okay. Yep. And what clothes are those? Like the armor of God or fruit of the Spirit. Okay. Fruit of the Spirit, armor of God. Um, yep. If we're, we're commanded in Scripture to put on Christ, to be in Christ. And so that's, that's a, a really nice picture of what it is to be, you know, He's provided for us through grace, by faith, this amazing gift that we are now in Christ. We've put on Christ. God sees not our humanness and sin, but He sees Christ's perfection. Oh, what an amazing gift that is. Um, look at the Old Testament with me for a moment. Find Isaiah. Isaiah. 
And I had intended on asking a question about today's sermon because I was in crossroads during, or excuse me, uh, next steps during the first service and I didn't hear the, uh, Brett preach this morning. I would have uh, enjoyed hearing what he had to say. So if we have a couple minutes at the end, I'll try to find out what it is he said this morning from you. Isaiah chapter 61. Everybody there? All right. Isaiah 61, verse 10. Uh, somebody want to read that for us? Verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns himself with her jewels. Did you all catch that? I mean, this is this is it fits so beautifully with this with this parable. Uh, my soul will exalt in the Lord, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. Uh, what a great thought! Uh, salvation and righteousness, covering and adorning a person. Uh, what, a, what a marvelous word picture that's been given to us there. Um, the, the person that was there without the wedding clothes did not have that robe of salvation, did not have that garment of righteousness. The king could see it. It was obvious to the king, and it's obvious to God who are his and who are not. Um, there is a judgment Verse, uh, the, the uh, king's command, after the man was speechless, he had nothing to say, which makes me think of how many times have you, if you've had a chance to witness to somebody and you say to them, someday you will meet your maker. Has that ever been said by any of you to anyone else? Yeah, someday you will meet God. Someday you will be accountable. What is it they often will say? What do they tell you? Pardon? He said nothing. Yeah. Well, he said nothing here in the story. Um, but what do people that you tell someday you're going to meet God, what do they say to you in response? Do, do they, huh? I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I don't uh, cheat on my taxes and I don't lie and I don't cheat on my wife and or I don't go with girls who drink or smoke or chew tobacco and you know all the other things that uh, you're not supposed to do um, you know so therefore I'm a good person um, it's not uncommon for somebody to say I I will tell God how good I am and he will let me in and in the story here, this man was speechless, standing before the king, or seated before the king. He had nothing to say. He knew he was guilty. And that will be the same for many others that meet God someday. So Jesus' conclusion, oh well, let me finish the judgment. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, 
and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if you trace that thought through the New Testament, you'll see it many times as, as a reference to, to hell. And, uh, and that's where uh, this, this man was taken. Um, so Jesus' conclusion then, in verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. Um, really interesting. Uh, in his commentary, Frank Steg says this, calling or election roots in God's grace, not in man's merit. It's grace, not merit, that allows us into, uh, into heaven. Uh, Wycliffe's Bible uh, encyclopedia has, uh, let me read a couple paragraphs from, from there. It says, although the call has many ordinary uses in scriptures, its chief importance is as a specifically theological term. Uh, the verb, uh, when used technically, refers to God's call to men to participate in the blessings of redemption. The benefits may be described as God's call upon his glory, uh, to eternal life, unto fellowship with his Son, and from darkness into his marvelous light. The call is dependent on God's divine purpose, established through the free grace of God, and reaches men through the proclamation of the gospel. So becoming man's one hope and calling is directed not to man's salvation, but to his behavior. Thus, Christians are called to unclean, uh, excuse me, called not to uncleanness, but to sanctification, to patience in suffering, to freedom, and to life in peace. End quote. Um, that calling is um, the, the genuine call of God to repentance can be heard by many, but when effective, it's irresistible. Uh, when, when that person is elect of God and they hear that call, it is uh, something they can't refuse. Uh, it's pretty amazing, pretty amazing. Um, the, uh, another commentary talks about uh, Brown, Fawcett, and Jameson's commentary. Uh, Those sinners are invited to Christ as they are, and salvation is without mercy and without price. We are accepted only in the beloved if there is no condemnation. It is to them that are in Christ, um, these that have, been, that have put on the Lord Jesus Christ, this is to have that wedding garment. Although we may not deceive, we may, excuse me, deceive not only ourselves, uh, but there is an eye which comes in expressly to see the guests. The one thing he looks for is that wedding garment. And amongst myriads of persons, all professing to be his, he can discern even one who is not. No moral or religious excellencies will compensate for the absence of the wedding garment. If we have not put on uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. If we are not in Christ, our doom is sealed. And what a doom. It is to be cast indignantly and without the power of resistance into the outer darkness, where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Oh, do men really believe that this is the doom that awaits them? Uh, who, are, however exemplary in their other respects, they venture to present themselves before God out of Christ, end quote. So it's a very serious thing, and Jesus is using this parable to illustrate 
uh, the nation of Israel, and then also this individual thing. Now, uh, as we were talking, what thoughts did you have about these points, these concepts? You want to share with the group a little bit? Silence. Yes. Well, certainly they're lost, but they profess, they have a profession that I'm a Christian. Uh, I'll call them a cultural Christian. Somebody who, uh, now I don't know if this is still in style or not, but when I was growing up, uh, you know, a person in business, they, they just, they said, I'm a Christian, regardless of whether, and they attended church, but, you know, outside of that, there was, there was no, there was no life. There was no life. And so I think the, the second part is what is more accurate. From all outward appearances, they say and do, and they, you know, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, but really there's no life. There's no life there. They haven't put on Christ. And that's a good example, that, that analogy, uh, or Jesus talking about, I think it's chapter 25, I think, where he goes through that, uh, that part of the uh, conversation. Yeah. Anything else? Sure. Yeah, when that invitation went out and, and some says, well, I got to go to my farm, I got to go to my business, you know, what's most important? What's most important? What else? Those are good thoughts. So, I hope that uh, gives you at least uh, some, some additional thoughts. Let me ask you a question. What did you learn from today's sermon that I haven't heard? Um, when you're going through Isaiah 45, what did you learn this morning? Yeah, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Uh, I forget exactly how many hundreds of years. It was quite a, quite a ways before Cyrus was born, right? Okay, yes. Okay, all right. That's an application that I haven't, uh, haven't had a chance to listen to his thought process, but that's interesting. I'll have to watch for that, yeah. Okay, yeah, God's anointed. What else? I don't see a hand. That's it? He gave a few points on how we respond to 
Yeah. Okay. Again, I don't know if you folks underline in your Bibles or not, but in my Bible, um, the last verse is underlined because it's, it's so interesting to me. And I, I'm going to have to listen to how Brett handles this, but he says, I form light, create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Uh, it's interesting that God takes credit for even calamity. Because yeah, you, you'll run across people who say, well, how, how can this happen? How can that happen? How these terrible things? God says, I even create calamity. Uh, there's a purpose for that. It's not sometimes real easy to see, but it's there. Um, got a friend who is a chaplain with uh, Samaritan's Purse and they send him, he's along with the first group of people that show up at tornadoes or hurricane aftermath and things like that. And he said, it's so amazing to see God work in those circumstances when God has broken down a person to they have almost nothing left. And it's at that moment where they seem to be most responsive to the fact that there is a God and you will be accountable to him. And he has an opportunity to share Christ with those folks. And, and God opens their hearts and allows them to repent. And then there's churches in the area that begin to disciple and shepherd these folks. And it's such an amazing thing that out of calamity comes repentance and conversion. Um, so even in that, God is sovereign. Uh, thank you. Let me, um, let me just close the prayer, and then I think we're doing the go group, right? And uh, Go groups, excuse me. So let's uh, close in prayer. Thanks very much for my, uh, the opportunity to come this morning. Father, I thank you for uh, just the time we've been able to spend in your word. Thank you for these parables that, uh, that we can uh, think on and, and begin to uh, incorporate some of the thoughts and such. But Lord, as we meet people who say they are good, uh, that we'd be able to help them see uh, that they need to put on salvation. They need to put on Christ through repentance and uh, calling out to him. Father, we just uh, thank you even for those who are what we consider bad, that we can share with them honestly uh, the gospel and that you would do a work in their heart as well. Father, thank you for this group. Thank you for the opportunity we've had to, uh, to look in your word this morning. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.